Thank you for joining Lexia as we unpack the science of reading. To view the webinar version of this podcast, please visit the link included in the show notes. Enjoy. Welcome to Science of Reading Week. I'm your host and event moderator, Cassandra Wheeler. I serve as the Senior Manager of Letter State Success with Lexia. I'll be here each day to kick things off with our star-studded group of presenters. It's nice to meet you, all of you, all 13,000 of you. Yes, you heard me right. We're expecting 13,000 participants in our Science of Reading Week, and we're just thrilled that you're here to join us. And we're so glad because this is our first ever week-long education event devoted to unpacking the science of reading and learning from some of the most respected minds in the national literacy community and celebrating the brilliant dedicated work of teachers who are implementing structured literacy in classrooms all across the country. We'd also like to stop right now and thank our partners at EdWeb. We'd also like to thank the Right to Read Film, the Reading League, and all of our brilliant presenters. Ah, speaking of brilliant presenters, today's session features the famed Dr. Louisa Motes, author of Letters Professional Development and a leading national authority on the science of reading. Dr. Motes has been a teacher, psychologist, researcher, graduate school faculty member, and author of many influential scientific journal articles and books and policy papers on the topics of reading, spelling, language, and teacher preparation. Dr. Mose also authored the textbook, Speech to Print, Language Essentials for Teachers, as well as Language Live, a blended instructional program for middle and high school students. Today, Dr. Mose is joined by Lexia's own Dr. Liz Brooke, Chief Learning Officer, who sets the educational vision for the company's language and literacy products. She has been with the company for more than 10 years. And prior to joining Lexia, Dr. Brooks served as the Director of Intervention at the Florida Center for Reading Research, or FCRR. She's been working in education for more than 25 years. However, before we dive in, let's set the stage with a quick poll. So our first question today is going to be, how familiar are you with letters? Are you A, letters trained yourself or your staff members? Is it that you've B, heard of letters? Or are you C, eh, I'm not familiar? You take just a moment and join me in the poll to provide your responses. How familiar are you with letters? The poll should be activated on your screens right now. I'll give you just a minute. How familiar are you with letters? You're already letters trained yourself or your staff members. You've heard of letters. You know, you know, you think you know what it is, or you're just you're just not familiar. Which one of these are you? And I see many of you typing into the chat as well. Many of you are joining us today because you've been letters trained. And some of you are joining because you've heard of letters. 
That's wonderful. If we could now show the panel results, let's see what the poll says for everyone responding to our poll today. Mm-hmm, that's what I thought. The majority of our audience today, 47% of you, are already part of the Letters family. We welcome you and we thank you for joining us today. Many of you, 38%, have heard of letters. That's a good thing because the word is getting out. And then there are only about 15% of you that are not familiar with letters. Well, guess what? You came to the right place today to learn all about letters, science of reading, and everything that we're striving to do and supporting with what Dr. Promotes is going to be talking to us about. All right, so let's close out that poll, but I have a second question for you. Are you ready? How much evidence-based literacy instruction is taking place in your classroom, your school, or your district? Will you answer that question for us? Is it A, none at all? Be honest about that. Is it B, there are some, but not all systemically across your school or your district? Or is it C, most or all of the instruction is based on the science of reading where you teach. So there should be a second poll. This time we're asking you specifically about how much evidence do you have of evidence-based literacy instruction taking place in your classroom, your school, or your district? And I do see many of you also responding in the chat. We'll give you just a couple of more seconds. How much evidence-based literacy instruction is taking place right there where you are, in your classroom, your school, or your district? All right, you ready for those results? Let's see what everyone had to say. Let's take a look. How about that? So I'll start in the middle because the majority of you joining us today, 71% in fact, say that there is some evidence-based literacy instruction happening right there where you are. Some, but, but not all. And some is good, we want some. That's probably another reason why you came to join us today. Then 26% say that most or all instruction is based on the science of reading. Gotta get the pom-poms out for that one. Wonderful to see that. But we do have 2% of you that are joining us today that said there is none at all that you can tell regarding evidence-based literacy instruction taking place in your classroom, school, or district. Today may be the catalyst or the turnaround for that. And again, we thank you so much for joining us today. All right. So as we close out that poll, again, thank all of you for playing with us today. So now let's settle in for our fireside chat. Dr. Motes took the time from her very busy schedule to actually pre-record today's conversation. She did this for us just last week. So now as we're getting ready to transition to that fireside chat, I'm going to invite everyone to just close your eyes and imagine that you're sitting in your most comfy, cozy chair, your lazy boy on your sofa, there's a burning fire nearby. Ooh, do you hear the crackle of the wood? Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a warm mug of tea or a cup of coffee or a nice glass of iced coffee or a mug of hot chocolate with some, ooh, with some marshmallows in it. 
as we enjoy this fireside chat between Dr. Louisa Motes and Dr. Liz Brooke. Here we go. Thank you so much, Dr. Motes, for joining us today and kicking off our Science of Reading Week. Well, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Liz. Please call me Louisa. Thank you, Louisa. And I believe many folks who are joining us today have heard your story, but I would love if you could give us your version, the two to three minute version of your background and education and really what led you to create professional learning for educators. Yeah, well, it's a story I think that many other people have um, experienced in their own lives. And that was I when I got a master's degree in learning disabilities in 1968-69, I came out of that and went into classrooms to teach kids who were by and large struggling with reading, although the word dyslexia didn't exist at that point. And even the term learning disabilities had barely been coined. But after my uh, superior education, I had no clue what to do. And I went on for about 10 years in the field, being a curriculum director, uh, uh, coordinator of this and that, and a teacher of kids who were struggling. And I really was unprepared. Um, and I think we were all unprepared. But in retrospect, when I look back at what I was taught in those years, um, the concepts were so off base and unhelpful and uninformed that it's been a very long journey to arrive at some adequate understanding of what goes on when kids learn how to read and write and use language. But the really formative experience for me, besides having responsibilities for which I was not prepared, was uh, getting a doctorate at the Harvard Ed School when we were required to study language. And Carol Chomsky, Noam Chomsky's wife, was our lead professor. She required everybody in the doctoral and master's programs to study language. And also Catherine Snow was our teacher for uh, courses in language development. And even though the department was led by a reading researcher of note, and that was Jean Chaw, um, it was our training in language that really gave me some insight into what I had been looking at and experiencing for those 10 years before between my master's program and my doctoral program. And when I got out of that program with some understanding about uh, things like phoneme awareness, which was a very new um, uh, area of research at the time, uh, just going back to the early 1970s, really, I then was in private practice and realized that I was writing all these diagnostic reports about kids and adults who had trouble largely with reading and language. And the people on the receiving end probably couldn't understand what I was driving at when I asked for certain kinds of instruction for those kids. So then I decided, well, um, I'll create some courses for teachers but then I had to find a place to teach those courses while I was in Vermont and petitioned. Uh, I was already an adjunct instructor at the Simmons College 
special ed uh, program, I petitioned the administrators to try to teach some courses in the structure of language and to kind of prepare teachers with the background that I was very privileged to get during my own doctoral training. So at that point, really it was the early 1990s, I developed the prototypes for what eventually um, has become the, the Letters Professional Development Program. But it went through a lot of um, growth, I would say, during those years when I was in Vermont and I was teaching at the Greenwood Institute. We called the these courses Language One and Language Two. Then we taught them at Simmons College in Boston. A colleague of mine took them over when I left that area. And then um, it was also through the research program, the NICHD-funded research program in Washington, D.C., where the teachers, um, I was responsible for the outcomes in that project. And I thought, well, the only way we're going to get results is to really spend a lot of resources educating the teachers about what we want them to do beyond the specific program implementation that they were required to do. And the outcome of that study showed quite clearly that professional development um, along the lines of what has become letters was a major factor in our ability to ensure that high poverty, mostly African-American kids, in fact, would learn to read at average, at the national average, uh, at those levels by fourth grade. And we felt very validated that even in those tough settings and those under-resourced schools and that high-risk population, we could, in fact, uh, ensure that um, the kids were doing as well as other kids across the United States. So that that's the short story behind letters. Yes, thanks for sharing that. And it, I had a similar experience in my undergrad when I was learning to be a teacher, I didn't have really any instruction in the science of reading. And it wasn't until I became a speech language pathologist where I started. So to your point that even though um, Jean Chal was leading the department, it was the work in the language and understanding how spoken language is, is connected to written language. So I think that is such an important part of any professional learning, but especially with letters with, again, the L um, yeah. around the language and, and making sure people understand that connection of oral to written language. So thanks for sharing. We'll come back to the topic of the importance of professional learning in just a little bit, but I'm curious your thoughts right now. It really feels like the science of reading is becoming a catchphrase or even a hashtag, if you will, that's thrown about in, in many ways. Um, can you share your thoughts or any concerns you have about how that phrase is, is being used currently? Well, you're right. I'm really concerned that it's so reductionistic the way it's being used. And now it amuses me that it's it's getting capitalized as if it were a thing and it's being talked about as if it was something you teach. And that's really not to our benefit because that, that kind of um, 
distortion of reality in the end will come back to bite us. So we all have to remember that the science of reading is a term that refers to this vast array of research across many disciplines that has accumulated for many years. And as I uh, look back at things I wrote 20 or more years ago, um, one thing I'm impressed by is that the basic tenets of what we are uh, wanting people to understand about reading development and reading and literacy differences in different populations and what works in reading instruction, uh, those things were pretty well known. Uh, And this is not new information. It's information that's taken a long time to take root. And I think the difference between now and then perhaps is that what's going on now is more of a grassroots movement. So it's harder for resistance to get mobilized, I guess, against some kind of authoritarian dictate that that everybody must teach this or that. And that, that never has taken us very far in our field. People would rather be a part of a process of learning and discovery to gain the insights necessary and to be informed by this body of work. Uh, and I think that's what's happening now. But we always have to use this term, uh, not capitalize it, but use it to refer to an enormous amount of information about all aspects of literacy acquisition. Right. And also that research is continuing to be conducted, right? So it's always being added to as well with with new research, um, which we'll talk about the importance of research um, here in just a minute. But I want to talk about another misconception about the science of reading that I've been hearing. And it maybe goes back to our conversation about the importance of language. But a lot of people equate the science of reading with phonics. So can you maybe address that misconception um, that the science of reading or high quality instruction in in reading is just phonics? Yeah, Uh, it's unfortunate. And, And especially when you read the stories in the lay press, there was another one in the New York Times, uh, uh, a little while ago. And it's unfortunate because what the science tells us about is all of the aspects of language and language processing and language development that are the underpinnings for literacy, uh, not just the learning of decoding skills. And that, and so phonics becomes a kind of shorthand, uh, the term phonics becomes a kind of shorthand for what is actually a complex process of teaching kids how to read the words. I prefer the term word recognition. But one of the reasons why there's been so much focus on that, I think, uh, is easy to understand. And that is because that is the aspect of instruction that if we don't get it right, kids fall by the wayside right in the beginning. So it's not true that we've all been teaching basic reading skills just fine and the real problem is comprehension. 
Now, the data tell us otherwise, that by and large, the kids who fall behind are kids who have not learned those foundational reading skills that in turn allow them to develop reading fluency and to read for comprehension. But I don't want to make light of the other big aspect of you know the simple view of reading, that reading comprehension is the product of word recognition and language comprehension. The language comprehension aspect of what we do also has gotten short shrift, but it's more difficult to pin that down and to um, identify what needs to be done better, partly because it's harder to measure what's going on with that aspect of learning, uh, partly because it involves aspects of learning that um, we kind of take for granted and don't talk about very much, like the ability to process sentence structure. I mean, that's right. foreign territory for teachers who've never had the privilege of having a good course in what language is made up of. So maybe that's the next frontier. After we get this basic reading skills issue down once and for all, I mean, it's about time after how right. many decades, <laughs> maybe we'll really get more sophisticated about enhancing the language comprehension aspect of, of this domain. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think um, some of the programs that are coming from more the balanced literacy or whole language perspective, I think teachers believe there are a lot of language components in those programs. And it is more the word recognition or the phonics that is the missing component. But I think when you mentioned about the structure of a sentence or the syntax and the power of just one connective word, right? I think the the language um, elements of instruction can be enhanced across the board, as you said. So maybe after we <laughs> tackle the basic foundational knowledge, um, we can put that spotlight on language um, and the need for that. And, and I do think that element of having a more difficult time measuring or assessing the language skills and it's less concrete than the letters and letter sounds, right? And so there is that element of um, different definitions of those language components. So um, one, one area that does get talked about um, a lot is kind of this concept around background knowledge. Um, and it's maybe getting a more exaggerated um, focus or emphasis lately. Can you talk about how sometimes a skill like background knowledge gets this maybe overemphasis and then other aspects, as we were saying, syntax or whatever elements of language um, maybe don't get the attention that they deserve? Mm -hmm. Well, it's been an interesting um, uh, phenomenon watching how the, the interest in background knowledge and the relationship between 
knowledge and comprehension has been such a focus and has had so many outspoken advocates over, I would say, the last hmm, seven or eight years, perhaps. But even before then, this was the focus of the core knowledge group and the Knowledge Matters campaign. The Knowledge Matters campaign has been very successful. And I myself have been persuaded by many of their arguments that if we just focus on teaching kids how to read the words, our classrooms are sterile and uninteresting places where kids no longer are learning about anything substantive. And it's really important to translate what kids are learning about how to read into reading for a purpose and reading for meaning. So it should be reading to learn that that we're all aiming for. And if you're reading to learn, then you need to be learning about something substantial and meaningful uh, and um, uh, something that will be part of a general knowledge, a sort of bank of knowledge that we agree an educated person has access to. Now, that may be an old-fashioned idea, but I do think that that E.D. Hirsch had the right arguments about the importance of that. And there is a a new study out showing that kids with in that kind of knowledge rich curriculum are in fact progressing very well in their reading comprehension so that's all good however what's been missing for me is the other strands of scarborough's reading rope that is the deliberate and systematic and explicit instruction in how the language works so that kids who are um, motivated to read for meaning because of a knowledge-rich curriculum will have the tools laid out for them. And being uh, well-schooled in syntax and how it works is one aspect of that. Being schooled in figurative language and how that works in text, being schooled in the organizational uh, um, um, underpinnings of different kinds of text, uh, being sensitive to voice and those kinds of things. And those are all aspects of language comprehension that can be taught and should be taught within a curriculum that aims to build knowledge. Yes. Right. Because I I like that idea. Again, some people talk about reading to learn, uh, reading with the purpose and the background knowledge and that knowledge rich um, curriculum is important. But I do think whether it's syntax or figurative language or text structure all of those things can be and should be explicitly taught. And again, I think that's a little bit where the disconnect comes when people talk about the science of reading. They think of phonics as very systematic and something you can explicitly teach, but you can actually teach 
like you, you were talking about figurative language or shades of meaning or, um, you know, there's ways to strategies to teach students um, to break down a word when they're not sure of the meaning, not just the pronunciation, right? When we think about morphology and structural analysis. So I, I think that is an important piece of this, this conversation. And so as we think about the evidence that makes up these decades of um, research studies, can you talk to us about the importance of experimental design and causality in terms of understanding how people learn to read and, and what practices are effective? Can you share a little bit about that and the importance of experimental design in these studies? Yeah, well, experimental design, I have learned... <laughs> is what we have to rely on to really settle issues of cause and effect. Um, other kinds of research are very valuable for other purposes. For, I mean, I've done studies of you know, classifying the types of errors that kids make, certain kinds of kids, and doing a linguistic analysis and things like that. But the real question is going to be, um, whether that kind of information is more useful than some other kind of information. And whenever comparisons are evoked or if somebody makes a claim that their program works, the next question is always in comparison to what? Because almost anything that we do with kids is going to work, that is produce progress with some of them, some of the time. Um, and that, you know, we always have to ask the next question, is there a way to get a better result? And the only way we can do that is with systematic comparisons of one thing against another. That being said, Instructional research and intervention research is very difficult to do, very expensive, very time-consuming to do it well, and fraught with problems, methodological problems. So that means we don't have simple answers. We don't have studies that answer every question that we ask about whether some aspect of instruction is worthwhile or not, or with whom it's worthwhile or why it's worthwhile. So to answer a lot of the more fine grain issues of um, instruction and it's, whether one thing's better than another, we have to rely on uh, well-validated theories of how reading takes place. Um, and well-validated understandings of the differences between good and poor readers. And then I believe there are probably uh, different paths to the same goals in some of the areas that we have debates about. Um, but there are many more issues around instruction and learning that need to be addressed by experimental studies 
if we can mobilize the resources to tackle those issues. But meanwhile, we need to plug along doing the with the best we can with what we already know. And that's pretty substantial. I just don't agree when somebody says, well, the science of reading doesn't tell us how to teach. Well, yeah, it tells us a whole lot about right. what we need to be teaching. And it tells us a lot too about some of the specifics. So let's pay attention to it. Absolutely. I think that, you know, your comment about um, the rigor that goes into treatment and control type studies in school environments, um, the large scale studies that are often done are important, absolutely critical. But to your point, we can't launch those types of studies on every single question that a teacher may have. So we have to use that body of evidence um, to understand what components are critical um, to address. Like we've talked a lot today about syntax. That's something that maybe hasn't been included in a lot of curriculums thus far, or maybe a teacher um, can enhance whatever program they're using in their classroom. So I've always thought about it as the professional learning is helping educators understand what that body of research has told us in terms of the ingredients um, that are have been found effective, what components. And then when they're in their classroom and they have these questions that hasn't been studied in a rigorous um, experimental design yet, they need to, to your point, rely on that knowledge base um, to implement the strategies in explicit, systematic. We know those types of um, principles apply as well. So it's, it's a really important point, which maybe leads to this next question about why, given everything we've talked about, I mean, it may seem like an obvious answer, but why is professional learning for educators so, so important in this um, journey to get to have more proficient readers than we currently do? It's because teachers have to make so many decisions while they're teaching an individual, let alone a class, that there is no teacher manual that is going to tell them exactly what to say. Teachers are not robots, right? They, even if they have a well-scripted program, the evidence from Shane Piasta and others is that you, you can put a scripted program in the hands of teachers, and if they don't understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, or the nature of the learning challenges that the, the kid in front of them is facing, they may not be successful with it because teaching involves intentionality. It involves the teacher communicating with the students about the purpose of the exchange that's going on. The teacher has to know, um, even if it's printed on the page, whether or not it's printed on the page, the teacher has to know what kind of responses and what kind of evidence of learning she or he is 
looking for and anticipating and has to problem solve constantly in response to the feedback that's coming from the kids, we hope. And in order to do that, the teacher has to have a fairly deep understanding of what is driving that child's behavior and has the teacher has to make choices on the spot about different examples, better examples, um, what to repeat, how to do it, what other strategies might help, um, how to check for understanding. And a well a well-written program is certainly a great help for someone, but it's not a replacement for what the teacher knows and is able to um, monitor in their own exchanges with the students. Absolutely. And thinking about the curriculum as a tool or the programs as a tool to empower the educators, but really the educators are at the center of the classroom, center of the teaching. Um, And I think understanding that why, right? Why is it on the page? Like just because it's on the page, you know, I, I go back to myself and I think about the prior first grade teacher left a screener that included some rhyming items. And I had no idea why I cared if they rhymed. I thought, you know, nursery rhymes, nursery school, like I'm in first grade now because I had no training um, in understanding phonological awareness and why rhyming was a skill we should want to um, understand a student's ability. And so I think to your point of even if we have, it, it has to be this partnership right? This interaction of a program that is designed with the components that this evidence has found effective in the hands of a knowledgeable teacher who can leverage um, the tools and resources of that curriculum, but also to your point, make on-the-spot decisions, modifications based on how that student responds right? Even understanding when you said about potential expected responses and how their responses can tell you so much about their learning, right? And how they're spelling a word perhaps, or so it is, it is really powerful in terms of that combination. Yes, indeed. And so I know you and I have talked a little bit about this, and I'd love your thoughts. We've mentioned now that professional learning is important, having a a solid curriculum or program that is based in evidence. But is is professional learning um, one step or one part of the journey? And how do you how do you see that journey taking place for districts and schools who are thinking about we want to make a change we want to invest in our educators where is professional learning on that larger journey of educational improvement yeah i'm glad you've asked because it's really the start point it's not the end and it's not the be all and uh it what we're doing is giving teachers, we hope, the foundational 
conceptual frameworks and basic information about the language structures that are learned and that have to be taught when we teach literacy and ideas about how kids learn to read and what goes wrong when they can't. But no teacher can take that, nor few, I would say, can take that knowledge and just go off and apply it without having very good instructional materials that embody the kinds of concepts that we've been talking about. And also classroom coaching and support, peer group support and leadership in the school building. All of those things are important in realizing the the payoff, if you will, for investing in something like letters professional development. Um, Where letters has made the biggest difference um, in our the reports that come back from the field to us um, is where all those other pieces have been in place, where coaching and consultation have been available, where the leadership in a district and a building and hopefully a state are aligned philosophically and uh, in their in their policies. Uh, with the kinds of information that teachers are getting in professional development. And then it has to be an ongoing process. Um, The instructional materials are always being revised and improved in the field. It's important for teachers to get their hands on the best tools available or certainly ones that are well-designed. And it's important for teachers not to work in isolation, trying to do the, and and many of them feel that they are just in their classrooms trying to figure it out. But certainly all the work I've ever done has been enriched by collaboration with other people. And I would hope that in the right context, any individual teacher would find it enjoyable and productive to have teammates and um, uh, peers in a faculty who are learning together, who are examining their teaching practices, who are growing together as professionals, and who are, you know, as a group, feeling the rewards of the efforts they're making and feeling hopefully a lot of pride in the advances that their kids are making, because ultimately that's the most powerful driver of change is when we start to see the improvement in the kids. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned leadership is, is so critical. And as you said, in the systems where it's been most effective, it has been all the way from the top down embraced um, and supported and um, the teachers and educators feel empowered and supported to learn from each other as well. Um, And I think what you said too is important, the instructional programs and tools always improving. And, you know, we talked about the evidence, making sure that the evidence Um, base includes the programs themselves. If folks are going to want to adopt different programs that they should have rigorous research as well around those 
programs, making sure <clears throat> that they are effective. Um, if, so, you know, there are a lot of good things out there that don't, that haven't been subjected to that kind of experimentation because it is costly to have independent researchers do good uh, comparative studies of different programs. I mean, there are a lot out there, but I think the most important thing is alignment, alignment with the tenets of research, alignment with what we know about uh, language, language learning. And so, you know, experimental studies are, are good, but we also know cases where some programs that were not, uh, that, that are, that are not, uh, hmm, aligned with research claim, claim to have experimental evidence. But when you really look at them and look at the data, it's that they were never compared to something that was, you know, better conceived. Right. So there, you know, a lot of pitfalls in asking for experimental evidence for every program that that might be worthwhile to use. So I equivocate a little bit on that. Right. Well, I think it's a good clarification that it has to first align with the concepts and principles that have been found effective. So around the structures of language that we've been talking about today. So that, to your point, there's been some programs that don't meet that first criteria of aligning to the components of the science um, and then show evidence in these experimental studies. So it is a multi-prong approach to make sure that, because um, I agree, not every um, instructional program can be or has been studied, and it doesn't mean that it's not effective, but I think that combination of a program that is aligned to the science of reading and as well has evidence, I think, is, is a powerful um, combination there. It's ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just as we um, wrap up today, again, I really enjoyed this conversation. I wonder what advice you might have for school leaders and teachers um, and, and maybe what is your greatest hope for the future of, of education? Well, my advice is keep at it. Um, this is not a fad, you know, wanting to align our practices, inform our practices with reference to science and understanding what the science has to say about um, you know, these major questions about literacy is really important. We need to stay the course this time and not treat this as something that's going to go away in five years. Please, I've seen these cycles go in 20-year you know, pendulum swings. Um, we were here 20 years ago, but unfortunately, the way the initiatives were rolled out didn't um, allow them to be sustained. So let's not go backwards. And then 
let's um, let's do a much better job celebrating the value of knowledge, knowledgeable and skilled teachers. I just feel that the teaching profession deserves so much better, not only in terms of uh, pay and working conditions, but also public appreciation for the jobs that teachers do and the absolute necessity of having skilled teachers, skilled and knowledgeable teachers who are appreciated and supported in every classroom, in every school. I, I'm not sure how to bring that about other than to always remind ourselves where we would be if we did not have wonderful teachers working day in and day out, and how imperative it is that we acknowledge the challenges of the job, the needs of teachers uh, when when they're asked to do a, a complex, challenging job, and um, everything from at least adequate pay to respect and uh, a certain you know deference and honor. Um, That's what I want to see, is this change in how society views teaching. Absolutely. As a former teacher myself, I I love that. And it's it's so true in our country, the value and the respect. I, I thought during the pandemic, we were starting to get there when a lot of caregivers and parents had to become the teachers themselves. And um you know, got a new appreciation for the job of of being a teacher and also just the amazing heroes that teachers are started to shine during the pandemic. But to your point, making sure that we continue even more so than today, but continue to value educators, to support them, to invest in them, um, invest in their knowledge, invest in their mental health, invest in in them as a whole in in the career choice of becoming an educator. Um, in that respect level, um, absolutely, and to keep at it, as you said, I mean, there's nothing more powerful than seeing those results in the students' eyes, and we know the connection of literacy to later school success, but more importantly, lifelong success. So I just love that um, your greatest hope focuses on teachers and and making sure that we continue to empower and invest and respect them. So thank you so much, Louisa. This has been a wonderful, discussion with you. And I thank you for sharing um, your knowledge with us through letters and through your life's work. I really appreciate everything you've done um, for education and for teachers especially. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Liz. It's been great having this conversation. All right. Thank you. Mm, Wasn't that delicious? 
to be able to sit in and listen to the Dr. Louisa Mose and Lexia's Dr. Liz Brooke sharing their personal stories of their own journeys with the science of reading and then the impact that it's having on all of us in the education arena. And I love the chats and the responses, the engagement, the hearts, the balloons, all of the celebrations. Thank you all so much for your engagement participation today. We really appreciate it. So I do hope that certainly you will join me every day this week for Science of Reading Week as we continue our conversations with some of the most brilliant minds in the national literacy stage. So join us tomorrow at noon Eastern for an Ask Me Anything chat with Donna Heitmanick. You're not going to want to miss that one. So save the link that we just shared in the chat, okay? Also, stick around this week to gain special viewing access to The Right to Read, a Jenny McKenzie film that shares the stories of an activist, a teacher, and two American families who fight to provide our youngest generation with the most foundational indicator of lifelong success the ability to read. This limited release documentary is available to view between April 24th through April 30th. So make sure you follow the link. It's in the chat right now and register using the code provided for that special limited viewing access. Again, I am Cassandra Wheeler, the Senior Manager of Letter State Success, and it has been my pleasure serving as your host and event moderator today during Lexia's inaugural Science of Reading Week. There's much more in store. So I'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody.